Welcome. I'm Dr. Liz, an entrepreneur, speaker, podcaster, mom, and wife. This podcast is about hypnosis, but also about all kinds of ways to help you live your fullest life, to heal, transform, to play the long game and go after the joy. You can see more about me at drlizhypnosis.com. Hop over there to get a free hypnosis file to decrease fear and anxiety or one to increase emotional stability. They're there just for you. I hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I do. Peace. Hey everyone, Dr. Liz here. You may be able to hear some of the rain in the background. It is coming into summer in Florida. So we tend to have daily rains here in the afternoons. And it's nice because it cools things down. So my conversation today is with Dr. Diane Dreer. She has published multiple books about the Tao Te Ching and gives us lovely insight in this interview about how it's still so relevant to today, even though it's a very ancient text. As you'll hear in the interview, I read it um, many, many years ago when I was back in college, and it was really nice to revisit it again through the eyes of her book, The Tao of Inner Peace. We talk about the creative versus reactive, the views of menopause from the East versus the West. They differ for sure. What happens to our brains when they're under stress and how the Tao speaks to this, how the Tao speaks to our very busy and distracted lives that we live today. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Peace to you. Hi, Diane. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I am delighted to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you. I did give your book a read that um, that you sent over, your publicist sent over, The Tao of Inner Peace, and was quite impressed with it. But I realize you have actually published, is it five books now? Uh, five trade books. I've also published some academic books, but not too many people read about uh, spiritual development in uh, Renaissance literature. <laughs> so, <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got it. All right. And you've had some new editions come out, though, recently. Um, the Tao of Inner Peace, there was a new edition in September 2021, correct? Right. The, um, the new edition came out as an ebook in September and as an audio book in January. Got it. Uh, because we're looking for a lot more inner and uh, outer peace these days. Yes, yes, absolutely, we are. <laughs> so then, and then this one is a new edition as well. Um, when did this one come out, the new edition? I think I must have been writing this book all my life. But uh, initially, it came out as the Tao of Peace in 1990, when we were living in a very different world. And yes. then I it uh, considerably for the 2000 edition. And then what happened was I realized that the Tao Te Ching has so many messages for us that are relevant to today that connect with recent research in neuroscience and, and psychology that I went back to school and got a master's degree. And I've been writing about how the Tao connects with research on the healing power of nature and many, many other things. So uh, this is an evolving uh, project, I guess. 
Got it. Got it. I did notice that in the, I am probably one of those rare people who always check the publication date for some reason. It just gives me Mm -hmm. a, a little bit of, um, I don't know, information and time, like when, where was this author in time when they originally wrote this? I, I did notice that with yours, like, whoa, this book has actually continued to be published. So in my mind, it was like, it must be good because it's been, <laughs> it's been published several times in new editions. And then when I was reading it, I just, I just really loved how the format was and how I could see that it was really timeless as well. Like, yes, there's updates to it, but it, there's a timelessness to it as well. Well, thank you. There is a timeless message to the Tao Te Ching, which my book is, is uh, the Tao of Inner Peace is based on. The Tao Te Ching was written over 25 centuries ago during uh, the Warring States period in ancient China, when Lao Tzu found his whole world was turned upside down. Uh, does that sound familiar? Right? Yes. Yeah. So, so what he did was he went wandering in the woods and found inspiration and hope by observing the principles, the cycles, and the energies of nature. He saw how a mountain stream is is vivid, alive, vital, full of nurturing energy. We all need water to survive on this planet. So it's gentle and nurturing, very yin. But with perseverance, water can cut through solid rock, as we see from the Grand Canyon in the American Southwest so that there's a strength in perseverance. There's a strength in nurturing. There is both yin and yang. And he learned perseverance and hope by studying nature and wrote about it for all of us. It's fantastic. But I do, you know, I heard about um, Dao Te Ching many, many years ago when I was in college. So over 30 years ago. But I did find it a little cryptic at that age, honestly, when I was like in my early 20s. And now revisiting it through your book, it's like it does have such beautiful messages and poetic. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. And I'm I'm learning more about the Tao every day. I bet. I bet. Do you, I mean, you've written, you know, I did notice then, and I haven't read this one, but you wrote one for women as well that I'd love yes. to talk about, the Tao of womanhood. Oh, I'd love to talk about that sometime. The Tao of Womanhood was written um, for today's women who can create their own possibilities by combining strength and compassion, yin and yang. Uh, Instead of fitting into somebody else's idea of what a woman should be, which seems to have been imposed upon women for uh, centuries. Yes. We can listen to our hearts, get in touch with our own energies, and and really bring those forward and create our own image of what it means to be a woman in the 21st century. And that's really important because our world needs people who are creative, not reactive. You know, the the words creative and reactive look almost the same, Mm -hmm. but that we're reacting to externals and creative is that we're bringing forward something absolutely new from our hearts, from our wisdom, from our intuition and our imagination. So this is a book that includes lots of different ways of being a woman today and uh, encourages each of us to fulfill our own personal destinies. 
Fantastic. I mean, it strikes me that uh, recently someone had told me that in the East, they see that period of menopause as like a period of great flourishing and production. Whereas in the West, it's it's almost seen as like a, a death really. <laughs> and so they had pointed out this contrast to me. And um, it just reminded me of this interview coming up of the, that perspective of the East versus West and how that creativity is nurtured and comes forth in a woman um, throughout her, her lifehood, let's say, but also um, as she moves into a more creative, let's say, development period in her life. So how have you experienced that in your own life? Oh, yeah. We have different seasons in our lives, you know, Uh, and the Tao Te Ching really shows us that there are different uh, times when we flourish and we bring forward new possibilities. So it's like we go through a cycle, just like our uh, our seasonal cycle. Uh, It's springtime out here where I live in Northern California and all kinds of flowers are beginning to bloom and the trees are coming back to life. And it's really exciting. It's a time of, of, of new flourishing and yang. Uh, and then there are yin times during the winter when we go within and are more contemplative. And I believe that each season in a woman's life, she can bring forth new possibilities. Margaret Mead, who studied different cultures and was not uh, totally Restricted by the uh, you know paradigms of the West, said that women experience postmenopausal zest. <laughs> and, and wow! Yes. Well, I'm looking for it. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, like where's my zest? To it's coming, redirect you know? our energies, you know, from a time of of uh, focusing on children and family to focusing on perhaps uh, you know a way of being creative and productive in a totally different aspect of our lives. There are many women who seem to embody that. I mean, Jane Goodall is still going strong out there. Yes, she is. Yes. Yeah, she just spoke in my area. I, I didn't actually catch um, that she was speaking. I would have seen her. I've seen her years ago. But yes, she is. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are people who, who will not just give up and sit in a rocking chair and say, oh, my goodness, my productive days are over, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. For women sure. Women in... Uh, in the U.S. Congress, Nancy Pelosi uh, and others who are, have decided it's time for them to put their energies out there beyond the family to the greater family of humanity. Mm-hmm. So how did you originally get interested even, like, how did you even discover the, the Tao Te Ching originally? How I discovered the Tao Te Ching was, uh, began with a, a real fascination with the wisdom of the East when I was 10 years old. Uh, my father was in the Air Force and we moved all over the world. And he was, when I was 10, stationed in the Philippine Islands at Clark Air Force Base. And instead of the American Midwest and the West Coast of the continental United States, I was all of a sudden confronted with this other world. We lived in a house with windows made out of seashells. Uh, Mango and papaya trees grew in our yard. And we had a young man who came to clean the house, much to my mother's uh, delight. Uh, And he polished the floor by dancing across the floor with a coconut husk, Mm. standing on the husk. And I tried that when I was 10 because the coconut uh, actually helped polish the floor. It seemed like a much more fun way to do it than with 
Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So yeah, then on hands and right, knees. Right. Exactly. So here, and my father brought back art from Hong Kong and Tokyo. And so I started trying to do Chinese brush painting when I was 10. The results were not great, but <laughs> was the beginning of, of a realization that there is this Eastern wisdom and beauty of simplicity and focus that the Western world didn't seem to have. It seemed more cluttered to me as a child. So I, uh, we, we moved many times. We moved to uh, Missouri, Grandview, Missouri. And uh, when I was you know 12 and in my class, I was drawing a palm tree and all the other uh, people in my class, my classmates laughed at me and said, Diane does not know how to draw a tree. Branches mm. coming from the top. How stupid is that? And the teacher, Oh, there are trees like that someplace. And I was trying to combine East and West, just, you know, here is this wisdom, here is this beauty on this side of the planet, and here is something else. And how can we have both and instead of either or? I began meditating when I was in college, discovered the Tao Te Ching, um, and kept, you know, learning more and more about the wisdom of the East, about meditation, which mm -hmm. relatively new uh, during my college experience. Mm -hmm. People didn't sit still. We were out marching in demonstrations. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> we need Yin and yeah. Yang, East and West, active and contemplative. Fascinating. So, and then eventually you earned a PhD in Renaissance literature. Yes, um, I went to UCLA for graduate school and was fascinated by Renaissance poets, especially Thomas Traherne, who studied the beauty of nature and found inspiration in nature's cycles. I thought, oh, <laughs> this is familiar. Yeah. My dissertation on spiritual development in Renaissance poetry. Mm -hmm. Beyond all that, I was interested in spiritual development, East and West, and um, have tried to put them together. I studied yoga and ended up teaching yoga at a place called the East West Center for the Healing Arts. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes. Here in Northern California, went back to school and got a master's in counseling because I was fascinated by all the recent research that has shown what the wisdom of the Tao has been teaching people for, for centuries. Mm -hmm. Nature about centering about combining yin and yang, what look like opposites, that there is common ground, which is uh, a lesson I think we could all benefit from more today because we seem to be very polarized in this country and in the world. Yes. Yeah. Um, how did you find that? Because I, I'm thinking like, here's here you are with a PhD already, and then I don't know that many people who want to go back and earn more degrees, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like even myself, I think about being a librarian sometimes that so I'd have to have an MLS and I'm like, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to go back and get, you know, another master's degree. Um, so how was that for you to return to school? I guess in a, in a different type of, of program that way. Well, it was really fun, actually. Uh, yeah, I I was teaching at Santa Clara University as a tenured full professor in the English department, teaching Renaissance literature, and during the day, and then uh -huh. I would go put on my my uh, casual clothes, my Levi's, and and uh, you know, 
hoodie and whatever, and go to the night classes of the master's in counseling program. So I, I <laughs> were you incognito? Did none of them know? <laughs> um, some of them knew because I was faculty senate president for a number of years. <laughs> so um, they they figured unless there was I had a clone or something that that was actually. Uh-huh. But I tried to keep a low profile and be a student. And actually, my teaching uh, became a lot stronger because I, I I remembered what it's like to be in class. Oh, yeah. I yeah, bet. to be insecure and anxious and wonder about, you know, the assignments. So in my professor uh, identity, I would pause and ask the students, do you have any questions about the assignment? Let's go over it to make sure everybody understands what I'm looking for. Uh-huh. I wanted my professors in the counseling class to do. So it, it was yin and yang. It, it was actually really fun. It's interesting. It's funny because I I had to take some master's level classes um, about 10 years after I had my PhD. And this was for, for my licensing. And um, I was incognito in the master's classes, really, because, you know, I was not a professor. No one really knew who I was. But um, I did quite enjoy it, like being a student again. But I remember also having quite a different experience of being a student returning, being a student that's older and um, being a student where it's like, there was nothing, um, there's no emergency going on. Like, you know what I mean? Like I had my degrees. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I, I, I wanted to pass the class obviously and do very well, but it wasn't like, oh, something happens with this class and I'm, I'm dead in the water. It was nothing like that. So I find it interesting. It was a very different experience for me as well, but enjoyable, really enjoyable. Yeah. It's not so crucial because you already have a PhD, you know? Yes. (laughs) um, I didn't have to prove myself uh, as I felt sometimes I had to do as an undergrad and as a grad student for the first time. Exactly. Exactly. But one thing I learned is that, okay, what you've been saying, a lot of the students are really stressed. Yes. Big time. And one of my graduate professors um, in the master's program, who's also a friend of mine, Shauna Shapiro, um, studies mindfulness and has Mm -hmm. a number of articles and books on it. She studied mindfulness with John Kabat-Zinn, very well connected. And she began each one of her graduate classes with with a... short meditation. And I thought, what a great idea. They were commuter students. They were full-time jobs, you know, coming breathlessly into their evening classes. You know, some of them had not even had dinner yet. So let's all center down now and be present. And I thought, what a great idea. So for the remainder of my teaching at Santa Clara, I started every single one of my classes with a guided meditation. Wow. What difference did you see that 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 made for your, I mean, did you see a huge difference? Like, was it even measurable for you? Yeah, actually, my students were much more relaxed. They seemed to be more comfortable. They were, they were not as distracted when they Mm -hmm. last. And they seemed to really embrace that practice for themselves because no one literally teaches students how to deal with their stress Mm -hmm. very rare situations and our undergraduates goodness there was a poll that said 49 percent of american undergrads 
have uh, anxiety or depressive disorders. That's almost half of them. Whoa, really? Poor, poor dears. So yes, they loved it. One day I w- was walking to class, ran into a colleague and ended up having her tell me all her problems. And I was five minutes late to class. And I paused at the door because one of my students, this young woman, was there at the front of the class saying, and now take a deep breath. And as you open your eyes, you she was leading them in a <gasps> meditation. Fantastic. So I waited till she was finished and then came in the door. They had they had claimed this practice for themselves. It was part of what they did in class. And many of my students said, I use this meditation, you know, this this breathing meditation before I go to sleep. And then I can get to sleep at night. It's wow. Incredibly powerful practice. Again, Lao Tzu said this 25 centuries ago. We need to be aware of our breathing to, you know, to go within, to find peace. But we we need actual strategies to do that today. Yes, yes, it's true. Before we started the interview, I opened up the book just randomly. And um, and the 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 passage is much chatter brings only exhaustion. Stay true to your center. So <laughs> it's exactly what we're talking about. Yes, there is much chatter in our world today, for sure. Yeah, yeah. We, there is. Energy drains, you know, from negative news, from, from multitasking, which is really not something that our brains do very well, uh, from being interrupted, from rushing, you know, all that chatter and commotion just drains us. And to... Be able to recognize, oh, I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling drained. What do I need to do? I need to center down now. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's just like so much wisdom condensed into just a couple of lines of text. It's really amazing. It really is a miracle. So I know that you're also married to a neuroscientist. And I was wondering about whether the information from him also influenced your work? Well, that's interesting. Um, we have a little combination of yin and yang here. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. He is much more scientific in terms of hard science than I am, but we both find a lot of renewal in nature. Uh, he has a horse and goes out mm-hmm. to see his horse uh, many times a week. Uh, so he's out there in nature, comes back totally restored and then we take walks and hikes together out in the natural world. His research uh, again, lab science very much into uh, the brain and what happens. And then we have conversations about that and realized yeah. is why you know we need to center down from Bob who does research on what happens in our brains because stress, puts our bodies and our brains in an emergency reaction, which we all know, you know, our heartbeat uh, speeds up, adrenaline flows through our bodies, our breathing rate increases, our immune system and our digestive system shuts down, our muscles tense up because we're dealing with an immediate threat. And also what happens is that our higher brain centers uh, are offline because we need to stop and think about it when we need to jump out of the way of a speeding car. It's like now <laughs> works yeah. in an emergency. 
But I, I believe because of all the chatter that we were just discussing, that a lot of people in this age are subject to chronic stress. You know, we're just mm-hmm. so stressed, we're rushing, we're multitasking, we're thinking about one thing when we're trying to do something else. We're not centered. And what can happen is that our higher brain centers are shut down. We don't make good decisions. We can't see the larger implications of our actions. And when we have a conflict with someone, instead of sitting down and saying, oh, well, you see it this way and I see it that way, where can we find common ground and and create something together? We tend to see the other person as the enemy. And someone who disagrees with us, you know, someone who does something unexpected, we get fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So um, my neuroscientist husband has shown me in terms of brain research, why it is so absolutely essential for us to practice mindfulness, um, yoga, stress relief, you know, to get in touch with nature, to do things that bring us back to our centers so that we can function fully as human beings and create greater peace around us by connecting to greater peace within us. That is really a lovely, lovely message there from the both sides of it, because um, I am amazed at how the science of the neuroscience really has evolved in so much things, so much that they've been discovering about how the constant stress affects us physically, affects our nervous systems, affects our minds, and then all the research around the mindfulness and how centering and slowing down and and just doing a simple breathing meditation even can rewire some of that, can help bring us into alignment, into balance, into um, more of a sense of peace. Exactly. The Dalai Lama, who is obviously (laughs) very spiritual and very contemplative, has been, as you probably know, working with a group of neuroscientists to find out what meditation does to the brain and how we can become more compassionate and what strategies we can use. Yes. I didn't know he works with a team of neuroscientists, actually. (laughs) Yeah. That's good information. Yeah. There's lots of research, Richie Davidson um, and, you know, a number of other neuroscientists. I guess my friend Shauna told me about this. uh-huh. They're doing all this research. They have wires connected to the brains of, you know, all these longtime meditators, and they see it makes a, a physiological difference in their brains. You know, that medit- yeah, I did know that. I know they've been doing some research yeah. on that. And it's like sometimes when I'm explaining um, anxiety to people, I'll talk about the different brain patterns and brain waves that go on and how anxiety lives in beta. And then we talk about how to move into a more relaxed state and your brainwaves will show that to go into alpha and theta and how when they study longtime meditators, they will often walk around in alpha and theta, whereas normally people don't access those states unless they're asleep, you know, or like truly relaxed. They're certainly not like walking around having conversations. So um, yeah, isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Yes. But long-time meditators are sort of like Olympic gold medal uh, meditators. You know, they've developed that capacity like a gold medal um, weightlifter or decathlon champion would develop his or her muscles. So 
it's use true. that capacity, the stronger it gets. So then they're able to stay in that wonderful state, which is why the Dalai Lama always is in a good mood, you know? <laughs> Probably. He, he came yes. to our school and he was laughing and, you know, he just didn't seem to experience any stress, even though, you know, um, there's all this technical stuff that has to be done to get ready for him to be present and to speak. No problem. He was just sitting there smiling. I imagine it like literally feels good for the brain to be in those more relaxed states. Oh, yeah. Like that. Yeah, because uh, again, uh, we get oxytocin, we get endorphins. Again, I'm out of my area, but there are there are these things that happen on our brains when we're happy, when we feel comfortable, content, we feel mm-hmm. love. And uh, meditation brings those, those uh, same experiences and, uh, you know, uh, neurotransmitters, et cetera, <laughs> to our brains. Yes. Yes. So what helped you make the decision to structure the book the way you did thinking of like the meditation you would put, you put little exercises. Um, I call them little, they're not really little. They're, they are probably quite life-changing. <laughs> okay. So you put these exercises, um, after the quotes for us to practice and to do. So I'm wondering, like, how did you come up with them? How did you um, decide which ones to choose, which passages to choose? Um, How did you come up with all the different ways that you address it in this book and help us live? To me, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this helps us live a more peaceful life like we were just talking about. Wow, that's a beautiful question. I don't think I consciously said, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, <laughs> um, A lot of times with writing, we're in a flow state and we get inspired uh, and connect to some, some source that is wiser than ourselves. But what happened was uh, a combination of theory and practice, right? Yin and yang. The first part of the book, each chapter begins with a Tao quote and then focuses on a theme, and that's nice. But a lot of nonfiction books make people feel good when they're reading them, you know, and then they look down and they go back to their usual routine. So I wanted to connect the theory with practice and give people um, an end quote, affirmation, and some ex- spiritual exercise that they could do to actually apply that Tao principle to their lives. Got it. Got it. It's really effective, I think, in terms of the questions that you ask. Some of them are very simple to do. It's not like, you know, we have to set aside an hour of our day to do this. <laughs> it's it's really very simple. Like go off by yourself just for a few minutes, um, relax, close your eyes and take a deep breath and think of someone has taught you about leading with Tao. So, um, you know, you go on to give a, a couple more instructions from that one. That's page 196 in case anyone wants to know and wants to pick up the book and look at that one. But um, I, I just really struck me how they're simple to practice. It relates to the passage and it does take things into our greater lives. So it's not just something we're reading and putting down and forgetting about. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying, that page 196, 197 is talking about being a Tao leader. 
which I think is absolutely uh, vital challenge for all of us because in a democracy, we all need to be leaders, you know, to create a world that is more just, that is more fair, that is more harmonious. So how do we do that? So the exercise says, go off and, you know, take a few moments, close your eyes. Think about someone who models that kind of leadership for you. How, how does this person do that? What does he or she do? And what can, what can you learn from this? And then see yourself applying that lesson. So one of the uh, lessons of leadership that I've learned is, is listening. You know, the, the best leaders <laughs> listen to their people and get multiple perspectives so they make better decisions. And by doing that, the people that they work with feel included, empowered, and it raises morale so that everyone experiences that sense of agency, that, that greater sense of energy and inclusiveness. Um, it's, uh, it's a win-win. <laughs> Yes. Yes. But I love how you connect it to someone's personal life. Like often people think of leaders as out there, right? Out there, a different level, that type of thing. But we are, we do have the opportunity in our life to be the type of leader we want to be, even in our own homes, with our own friends, um, certainly with our children, if we have children and in our families, our extended families. And so it does bring it back to that of really seeing, okay, how do you evoke this in your own life? It's very personal, not necessarily, you know, impersonal. Mm -hmm. Because our vision yeah. of leadership is inclusive and empowering. Uh, the psychologist Carl Rogers carried a quote from the Tao Te Ching in his wallet that said, with the best of leaders, when the work is done, the project, project completed. The people all say we did it ourselves. Everyone feels part of the process and empowered with a leader who's a facilitator, who draws upon the wisdom all around him or her. Because even well-meaning leaders can only see from their own point of view. And, you know, yes. my point of view, I can see directly in front of me, but I can't see behind me and my peripheral vision and my vision of what other people are feeling like. No, I need, I need more, I need 360 degrees and I can only get that from listening. Yes, that's beautiful. Well, it, it um, brings me back to what you were talking about earlier of how that all shifted. You got the new perspective when you became a student again. And it's like, and then that really affected your own leadership. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I was uh I was living my wonderful Tao philosophy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, right. So we are coming to the end of our time together. Is there anything else you'd like the readers to know about this beautiful book? Um, and then also how to find it and how to find you. Okay. Well, I'd like to leave people with the message that we live in very challenging times. I don't need to say that, actually. But a lot of people are feeling helpless and hopeless. The problems are so big. What can we do? And I think the Tao of Inner Peace offers a new path of hope because it draws upon the wisdom of nature. 
the dynamic growth and the interconnectedness of all of life and the fact that we can combine the polarities of yin and yang, awareness and action in our own lives. So my intention is for readers to realize that as we become more aware of the Tao's vision of life as process, we see that we're all a vital part of the process and our daily choices, our actions can make a difference and do make a difference in every step of the way. My favorite quote from the Tao Te Ching is from uh, the poem number 64, a tree that grows beyond your reach springs from a tiny seed. A building over nine stories high begins with a handful of earth and a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. We can each take that step each day, one day at a time and progressively make a positive difference in our lives and our world. And I wish people joy on the path. People can learn more about me and my work by going to my website, www.dianedreer.com, which is spelled D-I-A-N-E-D-R-E-H-E-R, all one word, dot com. And they can sign up for my Tao of Inner Peace seasonal newsletter, which comes out with every season. A new one is coming out uh, shortly about the wisdom of springtime and new beginnings. So visit my Psychology Today blog, which is called Your Personal Renaissance. And uh, because I believe it's a time for a new renaissance of awareness and positive action. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I think that's such a beautiful message. And um, Diane's website will also be in the show notes for the listeners. So you can always click there and find her and find her books. So thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Peace to you, Dr. Liz. truly enjoying today's episode. Remember that you can get free hypnosis downloads over at my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. I work all over the world doing hypnosis. So if you're interested in working with me, please schedule a free consultation over at my website and we'll see what your goals are and if I can be of service to you in helping you reach them. Finally, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. That way, more and more people learn about the power of hypnosis. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Peace. This podcast is not mental health treatment, nor should it replace mental health treatment. If you need therapy or hypnotherapy, please seek treatment from a trained professional.